There's a, a couple who had been married almost 70 years and were just approaching the age of 90. They had lived a very uh, good life, but really because of the wife's uh, regiment of exercise and her food, it allowed the couple to kind of flourish in their later life. And uh, they typically would eat vegetables and occasionally some tofu and bran muffins and all those things. Well, one day this couple was involved in a fatality, a wreck that sent them to heaven. As upon coming to heaven, uh, they found themselves uh, at the pearly gates. And it was there at the pearly gates that Peter welcomed them in. And as Peter welcomed them into heaven, he took them immediately to their new humble abode, this mansion there in heaven. And he began to show them around, which they were already oohing and on because of the outside of the beautiful mansion. But as they came in, uh, they saw their bedroom. And then from there, they went into this enormous bathroom, which was decked out and had all these fancy things. One of those, which was the jacuzzi tub that they'd never experienced in their life. And as they're oohing and on over that, the husband then looks to his wife and says, What's this going to cost us? And which Peter says, listen, it's not going to cost you anything. You're now in heaven. And so in heaven, this is all free. They move from there and they go into the kitchen and the kitchen is more, you know, uh, a show of splendor than even what the bathroom was. And as they go from the kitchen, there's these double doors that go out to this beautiful deck. And as they get on the deck, it's overseeing this golf course in which there's their own uh, personal putting green. But beyond that, you see this beautiful expanse of of, of greens and a golf course, which the husband then uh, goes, oh my goodness, like, is, is, like we can go play? Like how much are the green fees on this going to be? And Peter says, listen, there's no green fees. You're in heaven. And not only are there no green fees, listen, the course changes every handful of moments. And so you're always playing on a new course. And it's just an incredible thing. Hey, let me, let me show you more. And so they go from the golf course and uh, they come to this a place where at the golf course, there's this clubhouse and the clubhouse is decked out with tons of different things. But one of the things they notice is that there's a buffet of food. And as there's a buffet of food, the husband's looking around and he's checking it all out. And he's like, what in the world? Like, th this is amazing. He goes, yes, you enjoy all you want. And here's the good thing. Remember, it's all free. It's all free. In which he looks and he goes, there's no way. But he goes, but here's the problem. I can't eat any of this food. He goes, my wife has me on this low cholesterol, healthy kick. And, and he's, he's, I'm a little bit worried about all that. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. Peter looks at him in the eyes. He goes, listen, you're in heaven. So that, that means you eat what you want. There are no calories. There's no cholesterol. There's none of these things that you have to worry about. And in which the husband looks at his wife and he goes, if I'd have known all this, I'd have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> It's jokes like that that kind of give us an idea of what we think heaven might be, right? I um, mean, while we enjoy the, the jokes and we think about the pearly gates, and certainly we talk about Peter meeting us there, the question you have to ask yourself is, when we think about the hope of heaven, what things will actually exist? And what things do we think about heaven that might not be true? Over the next uh, six weeks, uh, we're going to be spending time talking about heaven. And the hope of heaven for us is happening when we have even a better understanding of what not only the hope of heaven is, but, hey, what will be there? And will I be there? And more than that, if I will be there, what things will take place? Certainly, there's a lot of different questions that come to our mind and certainly a lot of things around this topic that we would love answers for. 
And so over the course of this time together, I hope to give you an expansive amount of answers around some of this topic. And we hope that you'll join us in the weeks to come because they will build on one another. Today's goal is very simple. We want to build a foundation, which we'll do here in a few moments. I want to, real quickly though, before we do that, we want to welcome Edgewood. So we'll, can we just give Edgewood a shout out? Woo! It's always good to... It's always good to gather, and with technology, we can do that together in real time. And so, Edgewood, we're so glad that you're hanging out with us. I want to welcome those that are joining us online uh, that are uh, different parts of the country or on vacation. Uh, we're so glad that you guys are hanging out with us as well. When we think about heaven, uh, I think oftentimes you, you wonder, okay, is heaven just a particular place? And while we'll get to that in a minute, I think it's important to note that when you look at the word heaven in the Hebrew, it's the word shamayim. And the word shamayim, if you want to remember it, it's show me in, okay? Um, that's, uh, that, it's, it's, um, it's phrased shamayim, and it literally means a handful of things. It can mean sky, um, it can mean universe, it can mean heaven. Uh, to just kind of give you an example, I want you just to see where it means sky. When you think sky, you think clouds, you think rain. You see in Genesis chapter 8, um, that just here it says this, The foundations of the deep and the windows of the heavens, Shamayim, were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained. And so we, in some ways, we get rain from the clouds or the heavens, a matter of fact, the psalmist says this in Psalm 78, verse 23, Yet he, God, commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heavens. Now, the reason that's important is because when we look up and we see the expanse of the clouds and the sky, that's oftentimes referred to in the scriptures as the heavens. It doesn't stop there, though. If you think about heavens, you know that beyond um, the earth's atmosphere is something more. Matter of fact, last night, my wife and I laid on the top of her vehicle looking up to the meteor shower that was taking place. And so at midnight, we're there watching meteors in the middle of our pasture. And that's not happening in the skies. It's happening beyond as meteors burn into our atmosphere. And as that's taking place, we are seeing what's declared as the heavens. As the psalmist says in Psalm 8.3, it says, when I look at your heavens, I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. It goes beyond just the clouds and the place where rain comes from to the universe and the expanse of that. And so that's where you have Stars and the moon and the sun, it's where you have comets and it's where you have a solar system and the Milky Way and a universe that continues on and on and on and on and on. But beyond that, you have the abode of God, the dwelling place. And so this same word in the Hebrew emphasizes the clouds in the sky. It emphasizes the outer space that goes beyond that to the heavens, this dwelling place. And as the abode of God, you see it mentioned in Psalm 103, verse 19. It says that the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, Shalmayim, and his kingdom rules over all. It rules over the universe. It rules over the rains. It rules over all those things. But what's interesting is, is that you think about that, and, and it can be a little baffling, a little bit intriguing. Matter of fact, what makes it even more complicating is when you read in the New Testament, the Greek word, which just means uranos, it's, the, it's a word for heavens in the Greek, but when you read it and a story like this, it's even more mind-blowing. 
So Paul says this to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter or 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, he says this, beginning in verse 2 and 3. He says, I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So Paul's writing to the church of Corinth. And he's writing in the third person saying, I know a man, though he is that man. And some people would speculate, well, Paul is writing this 14 years earlier, uh, or he's writing it now, but 14 years ago, he's writing about an experience that he had. And he says, it might have been an outer body experience. I don't really know. Uh, which we know that there's been millions of copies of books because of people who've claimed to have death experiences, outer body experiences. Paul says, hey, I don't, I don't know if I had that or not, but what I do know is that what I heard is things that I cannot utter or tell. Now, some would speculate if earlier on Paul's uh, uh, first missionary journey, he was stoned, and uh, he was stoned to death, and they took him out of, the body, uh, out of the city, and they left his dead body there. And then some would say, well, maybe he had a spectacular resurrection. And I would say, I presume that that could be the case. Um, some would say, well, maybe that's when Paul had this experience. Here's what I would say. I think it's difficult to put the timeline together and speculate on that. And so I won't do that today. What I will tell you is Paul had something that he was caught up to in the third heaven. Now, when he uses the word there in 2 Corinthians to talk about his experience, he uses the word caught up, which is the Greek word herpazo, which is the same word if you're reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and you're talking about the rapture, the word harpazo means to be caught up. That's the same word that he's using there. Now, what Paul says is this. I don't know what happened. I know the Lord allowed me, talking about himself in the third person, a man to see things that most people don't ever get to see. We have a very limited account of that. And what I do find surprising as to other people who've claimed to have similar experiences is Paul never sold millions of copies Matter of fact, when he talks about this particular subject, he doesn't even talk about it as if it was himself. Why does he do that? I think he does that to just exercise that humility is found when we live for Christ in the midst of weaknesses as opposed to applaud ourselves in its spectacular experiences. And so I don't know what Paul Saul, I, I know we get a limited glimpse of it. Here's what I would say this. He was caught up to the third heaven. Now, if you've been a part of Mormonism in your past, or maybe uh, you know Mormons, uh, I had a Mormon tell me probably 30 years ago that they thought I would go to heaven, but that I would only make it into the first tier. Now, the reason I would only make it as the first tier or make it at all is because I was a good person, but that the third tier of heaven is a celestial place only meant for Mormons. Now, when you start beginning to read that, like you're like, what? Hold on, there's, there's three tiers of heaven? No, I think, one, Mormonism, one, denies the deity of Christ, and two, I believe, and I don't mean this to be hurtful, but I don't believe it's a true gospel, and so I don't think that they're acknowledging Christ as our Savior and God as the God that we would worship. As a result of that, we're not talking about the same thing. But I think what you see Paul say here, I've called up to the third heaven. I think an appropriate picture of that is it goes beyond the sky. 
it goes beyond outer space to this third tier. Which when you get to the third tier, you ask yourself the question, well, is heaven a place? And I would say certainly. Um, geographically, where is it located? Well, we know that Paul says in Colossians 3, we should set our eyes on things above. Paul clearly says here that he was caught up to the third heaven. So in some ways we could say, okay, it's somewhere out of the distance beyond us. And our hearts are meant to look upward, but to say, oh, it's up just beyond Jupiter and past the universe. That's a difficult concept. And here's why it's so hard for us is because God is the creator of all things. And for us to reconcile heaven as it truly is, the dwelling place and the abode of God beyond the clouds, beyond Jupiter and space and the moon and the stars, is to recognize who he is, first of all, as Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. So just to help you understand, to understand where heaven is, heaven is a place where God has always existed. It is the place where he was before he created everything we see and know. It is the place that is outside of space and is a place that is separate and outside of our own time. Time is relative because we keep it, but time is only existent because God created it. He's beyond all of that. And so what you and I see and know is because God created it. And it's for him it was by him, it was through him. And so we struggle to understand the, the nature of God because our minds are so limited, yet he exists outside of all of it. So what you know today was created by God, for God, through God, but he doesn't live within it, although he lives within it. Why? Because he's everywhere at all times. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful but he is not limited in this space because he's outside of it. Now that's difficult, isn't it? But yet that's how you have to understand heaven. Heaven is outside of everything here, beyond the clouds and beyond outer space to a, a place in which God has always been and always will be. Now, to get a better understanding and a foundation for today, I think we could also take our Bibles and we could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is in the New Testament. So our Bible is divided in two sections. The first one is the Old Testament, which tells you about the nation of Israel and the account of a Messiah that was promised to the nation. The New Testament tells you about the arrival of the Messiah. His name was Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's the Gospels. And then you've got the Acts, which tell you about how the Gospel flourished in the early church. And then from there, you've got letters. One of the letters that Paul wrote was to the church of Corinth. He actually wrote two. We're in the second one. And in chapter 5, you look at your Bible, that's the big numerals. And then the verses that we're going to talk about are the small numerals. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, big numeral 5, and then we're going to start in small numeral chapter 1. And Paul says this to the church of Corinth. He says, hey, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Now, he basically says, hey, listen, we live in a tent. And he goes, it's a temporary structure. And the word there in the Greek for that word tent is the word skenos. Um, now, the reason that's important is because skenos is a place, a dwelling it's a tent that's struck down. 
skinos reminds us of what? Skin. Now that's, it says we have a tent that is our earthly home that's going to be destroyed. It's temporary, but we have a building from God, which is a permanent dwelling that is a house not made with hands and it's eternal in the heavens. So he goes, what you have now is temporary. What you will have is permanent. What you have now is limited to earth. What you will have is outside of space and time in the heavens. He goes on in verse two, for in this tent we groan. <laughs> Listen, this morning I became painfully aware that last night for an hour and 15 minutes, I laid on top of my wife's car metal backwards. Like I couldn't hardly move and my body groaned, right? Uh, there's a lot of you in here that you go, man, you're a young whippersnapper. You have no idea what your body's going to do, right? Our bodies groan. Now, the body groaning is a harsh reality that this is not our home. But let's just be honest. Though we have pain in our physical body, the pain we experience in our bodies because of death and disease and sin and all the other turmoil in the world is far worse, right? And all of those things, as they break down, are just a reminder that this is a temporary place. But there is something far more permanent. And it's a place not made with hands, but it's eternal. That's verse 1. Verse 2, and we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. That's why Paul, when he was writing the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, he says, listen, to, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I, if I live here now, hey, I'm... I serve Christ, but if I go, I'm with Christ. So I, you can be here and serve him, or you can go and depart and you can be with him. He goes, both are great. I presume, Paul says, to be with Christ is better. In verse 3 of 2 Corinthians, it says, But if indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. Now, what are we putting on? We're putting on our heavenly dwelling. And he goes, it's interesting. If you put on your heavenly dwelling, your goal is not to be found naked. We'll come back to that in future weeks, okay? So you got to hang with me to get the answers to that. But he says, he goes on, for while we are still in this tent, again, the Greek word, skinos, we groan and we're being burned. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, what is important to note here is that wherever heaven is, that it's not a place of euphoria. It's not merely platonic thought. It seems to be here that it is a place that is, is, is going to include us. And it's not some disembodied spirit. But in Revelation chapter 6, 7, Revelation chapter 19, you see the saints were dressed fine linen, white, and clean. Hold on to that, fine linen, white, and clean. But they are dressed with robes. So what I would presume to believe that in this season and time when your earthly tent is destroyed, your spirit goes with God, you are clothed with something. You're not naked, okay? We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. I promise you'll want to be here for it. Verse five, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Now, here's what's important. God says, listen, you have, a, you have a broken down body, a tent, and you look forward to a heavenly dwelling. Now, here's why this is important, because this is consistent without, throughout our whole Bible. This isn't a New Testament thought. It's one that God has been unfolding throughout the time 
of the scriptures. Matter of fact, God eventually, the Old Testament, brought about from uh, Ur, the Chaldeans, a guy named Abraham. And he goes, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And he does that. Uh, it took some time, but God eventually brings Israel through some difficult moments to set them up as a nation. And as they are set up as a nation, one of the things that God did is he says, I'm going to be with you. And one of the ways God was with them was through the tabernacle. You know what the tabernacle was? A tabernacle was the tent that they would take. And as they were as a nomadic people, they would pitch that tent in various places. And they would put the tent up and God would dwell there amongst his people. Now, what's interesting is that tent was covered in skins and God would meet there. And then they would go to another location and they would tear the tent down and they would take it with them and then they would put that tent back up and it would just move from place to place. Eventually though, Solomon came along and as was promised to his father David, Solomon built a temple and God would dwell there in the temple and he would meet with his people until eventually they became so disobedient, disobedient that the spirit of God left in Ezekiel chapter 10, that the spirit, the kind of glory of God departed from the people. As a result of that, God no longer dwells with the people. But it's interesting because here's what Paul is saying. He goes, listen, just as God dwelt with Israel in the tabernacle, in skins, just as he met with them in the temple, a place built by human hands, he now lives among who? Us. In skins as the place where he dwells. A temporary structure preparing us for an everlasting one. That's what Paul's saying, which is really important because we are the dwelling place of God. As a result of that, it should change the way not only we view God, but also how we honor our bodies, how we think about the temple of God, what we do with the temple of God. How do you have the spirit of God live in you and yet live undefiled and unholy with blemish, with stains, with spots, with wrinkles? We're commended to be different than that, right? So think about verse 5 then when it says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So what he means there is this. He dwells in us as a, by his Spirit as a guarantee. So when you profess Christ and you become a follower of Jesus, he takes his Spirit, Ephesians 1, and he seals you for the day of redemption. He puts his Spirit in you. Now what's incredible about that is that the Spirit in you is, one, your light, your guide, your helper, your comforter. He's your paraclete. He's the one who guides you into all truth. He's the one who helps you to illuminate your path. We oftentimes think about Psalm 119, right? That he would be a lamp to our feet, a light into our path. As a result of that, that's the Spirit's help. But, but listen, it doesn't stop there. When you think about this idea, he's given us the Spirit's guarantee. The guarantee is the promise and the promissory note of something more. Matter of fact, that word in verse 5, guarantee, is the Greek word erabon. And the Greek word erabon literally means pledge, seal, promise, but it better makes sense with this phrase, engagement ring. So when he gives us the spirit to live in us, in this temporary dwelling, this tent that's one day going to be destroyed, he gives you the spirit as an engagement ring. Now, when we think about that, we go, oh, that's kind of cool, but let me tell you a little bit more, and you need to lean in with me, especially if you're way back in the back. Listen, lean in, okay? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you something here in just a second that is so pertinent to your understanding of this passage, and more than that, the concept of your whole Bible. 
So in Jewish culture, when someone is going to get married, it was an arranged thing. It wasn't something typically that the bride chose. It was something that father agreed upon. Groom's father would go to bride's father, and they would agree upon. And so here's what would happen. Commonly, the groom's father would go to the bride's father as they've selected, and they would begin to sit down, and they would work out the arrangement and the details of this marriage. As they worked out the details of this marriage, what happened was there was a promissory note. It was basically a provision or what you would call a dowry. A dowry would be paid, and the payment was two things. One, the payment was a seal of a promise. It was the engagement ring. And two, it was benefits to secure the engagement or the betrothal process. Basically, what the groom was saying is, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to add on to my father's house. And the bride was saying, I'm going to wait patiently here until you come back and receive me. And when this bride is there, she's got a dowry of payment that's been set. She would be marked and then she would patiently wait. And oftentimes that could be nine months or a year because there are a handful of things that are happening. As she's waiting, she is preparing her dress. Guess what color it was? White, fine linen, beautiful unstained. As she's preparing it, she's also getting her friends prepared. And the friends are maidens that are nearby. And what they do is they wait anxiously. They have oil in their lamps and they have a wick that is long ready to be lit. So when the groom comes over the hills, they are ready to consummate the feast. Oftentimes it would happen in the middle of the night, but they would be ready. And she was to not only be ready, but she was also to be waiting in purity. She was not to give herself to anyone else. She was not to yoke herself to some other better promise. She was now secured. She was signed, sealed, and delivered. There had been a payment, a dowry, and a promise. Meanwhile, the groom had gone to the father's house, and he began to secure commitments from other people to buy things and to add on to his father's house. And the father would have a house, and then they would add rooms to it in the culture. And so the groom would add a room to his father's house. That could take six months. It could take eight months. It could take 10 months. If you hit COVID, then it could take you a year and a half, right? So we don't know what all was going on. If the donkey that pulled all of their wood and timber died, we don't know. If the oxen there, they had none. Every case was different. What you do know for sure that happened is there was an arrangement. There was a dowry that was paid. There was an agreement to stay chaste, pure, and undefiled. And there was a a groom building onto his father's house. Matter of fact, it reminds me of these words from Jesus himself. In John chapter 14, he gathers his disciples and he says these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. Put your trust in God. Put your trust also in me. For in my father's house, there are many rooms. And if it weren't so, I would have told you. But if I go and I prepare a place for you, you need to know that I will come back and receive you unto myself. That where I am, you may also be. So here it is, this picture laid out throughout Scripture is being identified here through the Apostle Paul where he says, look, God has prepared us for this very thing. And he has given us a spirit as a guarantee 
Listen, he goes, you have an engagement ring. The promissory note. He's not left us alone. Yes, you once were alone. You once were an orphan without a father, but he's given you a father. You were once an alien and stranger, but now you have a king. You, you once were a servant of the world, but now you serve the most high God. You once were uh, oftentimes stumbling in darkness, yet God has illuminated your path. He's given you light. He has given you a spirit, a helper, a comforter, a teacher, one who guides you to all things. You go, I don't know the scriptures. I can't discern them. Listen, if you don't know the scriptures and you can't discern them, it might be a a reality that God's not in you. Because if he is in you, he's guiding you to his truth. And that's what he does. So as a result of that promise, it just helps you know that right now we have one who is building onto his house, waiting to come back. And what do we do? We live now as pure, chaste, undefiled, unstained. We're not orphans, aliens, but we are married to Christ. Therefore, we are his. And he is ours. And we should live as if that's a reality. Not in this temporary world as our home, but as if there's something beyond what we can't see that is a heavenly reality. That's the goal. As a result of that, that's why Paul says these words, and we'll go through them pretty quickly. He goes, so we're always of good courage. Absolutely we are. It's hard here. Didn't Jesus say that? Hey, take heart. I mean, did Jesus not promise us in John chapter 16 that there will be tribulations of various kinds? But he says, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. Is that true? Yes. As a result, be of good courage. So that while we, right now, while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So we're not home of the Lord right now. We're away from him. But that's why we walk by faith. He goes on. He says, yes, we are of good courage. He says it again. And yes, we would rather be away from the body at home of the Lord. Absolutely, our desire should be with Christ. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim, our life's ambition to do the same thing. Whether we are here or where we are with God in the heavens, we should please him. That's the goal. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And when he uses the word judgment seat of Christ, it's the word there in the Greek, bema, which refers to a different judgment than what we oftentimes think of as the grand judgment or what we would call the white throne judgment. The bayment judgment is addressing those who are followers of Christ. Really, here's the idea. If God gives you a spirit as a guarantee, the question he wants to ask you on the day of the bayma judgment is, how did you do with the things I called you to be obedient to? Let me put it to you a different way. If you were the bridegroom adding on to the house, the question you might ask in the seven-day feast period as you consummate your Jewish wedding, you might ask your, your bride, hey, did, did you stay chaste and pure? Like that's a question relative to marriage, right? If I'm a groom, I'm pretty interested to know if my bride has been true to me. That's Bama judgment. God wants to know how have, you, how have you been true to me? And you get to give an account for how true, how straight you've shot your arrow. That's the key. 
Now, that's a lot to take in. And so as we kind of take that in, let me just leave you with three quick truths. I'm going to give them to you very quickly. Number one, I think we could easily say from our study today that heaven is an actual place. The Gnostics, the Greek philosophers, thought it was platonic thought. They thought the best reality was to escape the body because the body was corrupt. So let's escape it to some other reality. Listen, it's not about some platonic thought. Heaven is a true reality, and it is an actual place. It is interesting because Jesus said to the thief on the cross in Luke chapter 23, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, hey, today we'll join euphoria. Like Jesus could have said a lot of different things. What did he say? Today you'll be with me in paradise. In paradise presumes to be that heaven is an actual place. Number two, Christ is preparing a place for those who follow us. Did y'all see that today in scripture? Man, what a glorious reality. Now, why is that important? Because throughout all of scripture, you see that the dowry or the payment that we have, the heir of bone, the engagement ring we've received by the spirit of God seals us for a variety of things. In Luke chapter 10, it just reminds us that our name is written in heaven. So that's awesome. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that our citizenship or that our inheritance is in heaven, that it's kept in heaven. Paul writes in Philippians and says uh, in chapter 3 that our citizenship is there. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that our reward is in heaven. Um, You see in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to the church of Ephesus that our master is in heaven. Uh, As a result of that, Matthew also, you see, records the Sermon on the Mount. In the middle part of it, Jesus says that our treasure is in heaven, and that's where we should build treasures. So as a result of that, not only is it a physical place or an actual place, we also know that God is preparing a place for those who follow him. Which, let me just blow your mind with one more thing today. Do you believe that God created everything we see and know in how many days? So it's actually six, and he rested on the seventh. That's right. I just see if you're awake. Um, he created everything in six days. Let me ask you a question. Just think about this. If Jesus said to his apostles over 2,000 years ago, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and he's had that much time to prepare a place for the saints, how much more glorious is it the earth that he spoke into existence in six days? Like what a profound thought to know that his, his promise is true and he's preparing a place. Not only is it a place, but it's prepared for those who follow him. That's where our citizenship, it's where our title deed is secure. It's where we embrace the heavenly realities of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. But I, perhaps I don't need to end this way, but it, it's unavoidable. And that is the third truth. And that is that many people won't be in this heaven. It is a comforting reality to know that Christ secures it, but it's also sad and a grim and a sobering reality that not everyone will be there. And if you want to join me in Matthew chapter 7, you can, but in verses 13 and following, Jesus just says these words. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. He just gives you the grim reality. He goes, listen, there are going to be far more people that follow the way of destruction and sinfulness and rebelliousness, and they look for their hope here on earth as opposed to something outside of it, which is an eternal reality. So he goes, you just need to know there are fewer people who find the path of truth than there are those who find the path of deception. 
Now, I would love to believe that everyone here is following the path of truth, but the reality is, is that we need to know that not everyone does. And so that's why we exist. Uh, we exist to be a hospital and a place of healing for people who are sinners. And so if you hear this message today, the goal is not to say, hey, there's no hope for you. The goal is to say there's absolutely hope for you. And there is hope for even the craziest of sinner in here. And maybe you're here and you thought, I walked in this place and this place is going to fall down. Listen, can I just tell you, I've met many rebellious people who've walked into this place. And I've also met many rebellious people who've walked out of this place a new person. You don't have to follow the wide path. You can follow the narrow one. But you go, well, how do I know if I have? Well, Jesus goes on in that same passage. He goes, listen, beware of false prophets, those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So how do you know if on the outside they look good, but on the inside they're damaging? He goes on. He says, listen, you're going to recognize them by their fruits. And he asks a simple question. This is when I'd ask you, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? That's not rhetorical. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? No. He then asked another one, what about figs? Are they gathered from thistles? No. Seems like a simple truth. So he goes, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And he's not talking about trees. He's talking about people. So he goes, look not at what they say. Don't look at what they'll tell you they're going to do. Look at what they do. Look at who they are. And look over a consistent pattern of time. It's really easy for us in a whim to say, I'm going to change. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be new. But the reality is, if you look over a course of time, you got to ask yourself is, am I getting grapes or am I getting thistles? The way I like to think about it is, in the book Hansel and Gretel, they left breadcrumbs behind. When you look at the breadcrumbs of your faith, what's there? It's a great question. Jesus goes on and he says, and this is the reality, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So on that day, many will say to me, many will go, hey, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus continues on. And he says, listen, there's a wise builder and a foolish builder. A wise builder builds his house on the rock. A foolish builder builds his house on the sand, something that doesn't last. And listen, can I just tell you this real quickly? We live in a culture that is really good at Christianese. We know what to say. We know how to answer. We know when to show up. But none of those things are the byproducts of true faith. True faith is not about believing in a coin that says, in God we trust. True faith is not following the coattails of your father or grandfather. True faith is not, is not existent upon the fact that your family was a founder of a church or that your dad was a pastor. True faith is only experienced when you recognize your sin and you turn and you repent and walk towards Christ in a new life. 
Friends, it's available to all of us who would believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Important thing Jesus said to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Listen. We have a country that loves the idea of a supernatural sovereign deity, but hates the idea of a narrow road that leads to life through Jesus Christ. Those are not the same thing. One is inclusive to everything, and one says absolutely it's inclusive but only if you'll deny yourself and follow Christ. One celebrates you be who you want to be. After all, you're in charge. And one says you're not in charge. You were created by a grand creator. You are merely a watch that was set in motion and intricately woven together by its maker. The watch doesn't Tell the maker how to make time. And you can't have both. You can't be the grand designer and not be perfect, which is what we all are. And then tell the grand designer how things should be. So is there room in heaven for all of us, for every sinner? for every single person struggling with addiction, for every single person struggling with things that they don't understand in their body, absolutely there is. That's the cross. It's wide enough, it's high enough, it's deep enough. But only when we will submit to God and acknowledge that he is supreme and we are not. And when we recognize, I don't know what all's going on within me, and I don't know how to control it. I don't know how to manage it. I don't know, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't get it at all. Well, you're not meant to. All you're meant to do is have a God-shaped vacuum in your heart that points you to something more grand. And when you look to the heavens, the skies, the stars, the moon, there is a glorious thing set in you according to Romans 1, that every time you see something in creation, it sparks something that says there is a watchmaker that is supreme. And friends, I invite you to get to know him. And if you'd love to have a conversation, I will avail myself to you today as long as you need so that you might know my Savior and that you might know the God of heaven and that you might live with him too. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truth of the Bible. Though oftentimes difficult to completely understand, Lord, we thank you that your spirit allows us to see your truth. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to live for you, to love you, and to be different. Set apart as your people. Help us to be pure. Help us to be undefiled. Help us to be unstained. Help us to live in this heavenly reality that this is not our home. There is more for us. And I pray that today that would pierce our hearts and that you would give us hope and a future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.